Civility and politeness are completely different things. They, they are often used interchangeably. You say that civility is a disposition, a way of seeing others as being endowed with dignity and inherently valuable. Politeness, by contrast, is a technique. It is decorum, mores, and etiquette. Hello, friends and listeners. Thank you for staying with us. We are back and now with our first guest interview for Walk the Way. I am so excited to introduce you today to my friend, my uh, you know, an old colleague of mine, a writer, a thinker, a philosopher, and now an author of a wonderful new book, an upcoming book called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and ourselves. This is Alexandra Hudson. Alexandra, welcome to Walk the Way. Thanks, Stephen. Fun to be with you here. I am super excited to bring you on. I, I've been in the loop on your, your book and its upcoming debut in October uh, for a long time. And this has just been a long time coming. Uh, how are you feeling in the, the run-up to publishing your first book? And then we're going to get all the way into it. I'm feeling great. I cannot wait to bring this book to the world, this product of 10 years of work and a lifetime of thought on the most important question of our day, which is how do we do life together across difference? And I have to thank you, Stephen. You know, we've known each other a long time now, like four or five years, and um, you've been a part of this project at, 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 at many different phases. And um you know, I, I had I had to write this book. I could not write it, and you helped me overcome many of the barriers, and just were such a and uh, helping me helping you know refine my thinking and my communication on radio and television. And I'm grateful for that, Stephen. You're you're a part of this this project too, and seeing it succeed. So this is this is your success as much as it is mine. So I'm grateful for for your support and for your friendship. Well, this this was not in my my notes to talk about, but this is what I feel compelled to say to you, and we're doing it live, so yeah. let's go for it. So, I I am blown away by the way that you carry yourself. In my time knowing you, I just find you so impressive. You are a, a warm and soothing presence. You are graceful. You're forgiving. You show so much gratitude. You are the kind of person who writes thank you notes still. <laughs> send out holiday cards. Uh, you, I've said that you remind me a lot of my sister, but you're like you're like the joyful bubbliness of my sister plus like southern Southern Belle etiquette, and that can be really intimidating in a friend, uh, you know, because I I receive so much warmth from you, so much what I would call manners, uh, you know, really, really classical ways of dealing with people. And I go, gosh, I love Alexandra. I want to be more like her. And then I never do. <laughs> and, and so I want to, I want to know how you think about that interacting in a world where so many people have lost touch with basic forms of etiquette. They can still be nice, lovely people, but they, they aren't polished. They aren't crisp. And how do you think about bringing what you have into the world and then receiving sometimes nothing from others, like no handwritten note in response to your handwritten note? How does that factor into civility versus politeness? So thank you for your kind words, Stephen. Um, and it's such a funny question because it's true. Uh, and this is this is in the book. It's part of my story. I had an exceptionally unusual upbringing. I am the daughter of the manners lady, not a joke. Like her name is Judy, the manners lady. And what I learned during my book is that she is one of four women who are internationally known across, you know, across, across the world, US and Canada, um, as, as being experts on etiquette and manners who are named Judy, Judith. <laughs> there are four of them. Like there's, there's Judith Martin, who's the Washington post columnist. And there's another, uh, women, uh, well, two other, the, all, all these Judiths also ties to Boston, strangely enough. So there's Judith Ray, Judith Bowman. And then my mom is Judy Johnson Bankovich, Judy the Manners lady. And so I, it, it's just like, what are, are the odds? It's just very funny, uh, kind of commonality, but all that to say, I was raised in this home that was exceptionally mindful. Of, of social norms and expectations. And above all, though, like my mom is the most warm and hospitable and gracious and loving person in the world. So she had both, you know, the form and the substance that that comprise, you know, true civility. And, you know, to your question about 
how does someone like me and raised, you know, to be mindful of these things and to carry, carry them on and, and how I carry myself, um, you know, early iterations of this project on civility were out of frustration because so, so often, you know, to your point, things wouldn't go be reciprocated and, um, you know, people wouldn't do or say things that I would just expect them to do. And I, it was hard for me sometimes to just like grapple with the fact that not everyone was raised as I was, like not, not everyone knows what expectations there are. And so like I was, you know, harboring these unrealistic expectations of others. And that's not fair to hold people to standards inside that, that aren't common standards anymore. And so all that to say, uh, I wrote this book in some ways to kind of save me from my own like self-righteousness, like, and just to kind of work, work through it. Um, and, and to, to help me figure out for myself too, what are just the, the, the timeless principles of human flourishing and the essentials that help us really do life together? Because the non-essentials that I'm expecting of others, get rid of them. I should lower my expectations. And as a society, let's not worry about them. But the important ones, heck, let's save them. Like if there's really something like, you know, writing a thank you note after dinner party, for example, I think that's a nice gesture. And yeah. I think that's when we should cut, that should come back. And we should, <laughs> we should, it doesn't have to be handwritten, although it is a nice touch. Well, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of the idea that Marcus Aurelius puts forward in, in meditations on looking for the third thing from people where you're supposed to not look for the third thing, which is acknowledgement or thanks for doing the right thing. Uh, very often, if we get swept up in seeing the opportunity to do a good and righteous thing, or, you know, or a, a, a polite thing, uh, then we take action. And then we wait for this third thing to happen, which is now I will be acknowledged and it will be reciprocated. And that is a complete waste of time. It's not, it's no way to live, right? You just do the right thing for its own sake. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's so true. It's so, that's so good. Yeah. And I realized, you know, that that's part of my story that uh, I realized, you know, when I was in government, and I responded to this sort of hostile environment with the survival tactic with which I was most familiar, which was extreme politeness. And I was like, incredibly like above and beyond thoughtful and kind, like, you know, me, Steven, like, you know, brought in my Christmas cards to everyone and brought in, brought in cupcakes for everyone's birthdays. And, you know, I just, I wanted to be, I was in such survival mode that I wanted to be the person that no one could hate. I wanted to be impossible to dislike and no one could fire. That's what was really scary. Like I wanted to be so loved that I was above, you know, any of the terrible things that were like the backbiting that was that, that, that people were. And that is a tactic. That's not normally a tactic like that, that it is in my personality, but that is a tactic like in personality traits in general to like to be the people pleaser. Right. And so in a stressful environment that I tracked hard in that, in that direction. And I realized exactly to your point, Stephen, that I was being super nice to others, but it was for the wrong reasons, right? It was self-preserving. It was, it was to, it was to ensure that and hope in hopes, vain hope <laughs> that, you know, I would be uh, above, above, you know, again, all the backbiting and nastiness that define my time time in government. There was, I was watching a stand-up special with my wife and daughter the other day by John Mulaney, is definitely one of our favorite stand-up comics. He does uh, writing for Saturday Night Live, or at least he did before he he bottomed out on a cocaine problem a couple okay. of years ago. Uh, but no, he, uh, he, he and I are alike in that he was talking about how he goes out into the city with his wife. She's this, you know, short, proud, you know, doesn't care what you think of her Jewish woman. And he is this just very, very needy, uh, emotionally, like I need feedback from other people and approval, little Catholic boy. And he just goes, my wife says I go out onto the street like I am running for mayor of nothing. I need everybody all day long to like me so much. It's exhausting. My wife said that walking around with me is like walking around with someone who's running for mayor of nothing. <laughs> and I, we were all watching that and my girls both turn and look at me and they're like, yeah, that's, that's you, dad, you know, you just, you need that approval. And that can be so exhausting and draining. I, I hope that you are learning to overcome that the way that I have had to. Um, 
gosh, just even having like one person on the internet who disapproves of me and my activities. Oh, man. I, it, it's like a, a weight on my chest. <laughs> oh, what would Marcus Aurelius say about that, Stephen? I'm sure he's got something in there applicable to social media. Like Probably. The, yeah. <laughs> probably. Uh, he would probably say, <clears throat> we all deal with that problem to a certain extent. Some of us have gotten better at dealing with it. Yeah. Um, but you in this book, I, I first of all, it's beautiful. Uh, so I just have, I just have the advanced review copy, so it doesn't have all of the the bells and whistles as this will have when it's on store shelves in October and on Amazon, wherever books can uh, are sold. There's a bit in here about, you know, the 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 call for civility in politics, and there's a lot of discussion always about how we need to be more accommodating to people who are unlike us and particularly some of the worst people, right? So let's, let's talk about like the vitriolic, the racists, uh, you know, the criminals, all this kind of stuff in our culture. And we're told to be civil in dealing with these kind of elements. I remember the calls for civility, like after the Charlottesville incident uh, between mm -hmm. counter protesters and neo-Nazis and Klansmen on the other side. Um, I imagine you get a lot of feedback, negative feedback, when you're talking about how we need to be civil in our political culture. But people are misunderstanding what you mean. What do you mean when you say that our political culture and you know civil society needs civility between one another? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. So there are two camps today, two groups of people. There are those that long for these days of gentility and chivalry and a bygone era of civility and just comity, getting getting on together across difference. Uh, and they, they, they want to bring back, you know, a, a, a bygone era. And then there are people who say, no, like, we're, we've moved past that. We've moved we've past civility. And, uh, you know, civility and politeness, they are tools of white supremacy. They're tools of the power to stay in positions of power. They're, they're ways to silence disagreement and, dis and dissent and to um, stunt social progress that, that we so need. And so we need to leave those bygone values in the past and do whatever it takes to gain equality, equity uh, for all and social progress and justice for all. And yeah, and, and so what these, both these groups miss though is that civility and politeness are completely different things. They, they are often used interchangeably. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, our dictionaries, all the way back to Samuel Johnson's very first dictionary in 1755, defined civility in terms of politeness and politeness in terms of civility. Civility, like that the entries literally mm -hmm. mention one another. And yet I think it's important generally, but especially for us, right now in this moment as we try to figure out what we want more of and what we want less of in society to disambiguate them, take them apart. They're different. So this is the difference. Can I read your passage for yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love this passage from you on this, on this subject. So you say that civility is a disposition, a way of seeing others as being endowed with dignity and inherently valuable. Politeness, by contrast, is a technique it is decorum, mores, and etiquette. Politeness, the thing that manners and civility serves, or, or that manners serve. Um, so yeah, so like manners is a thing that you learn. I went to Cotillion when I was a kid. You I did. learned. I did. Yeah, I, I loved it. I had a great time, um, mostly because I was just pining after the girl who uh, I was going to it with. But um, you know, so the manners part is a technique but it can also be something that is weaponized. It depends on how you use it. It can be used for light or used for dark, mm -hmm. but civility is something deeper. That's right. That's right. So um, as you noted, politeness is its manners, it's, it's etiquette, and that can be um, something that can be used to deceive, to obscure ill intentions on, on the inside. You know, you're talking about, um, you, you called me a Southern belle earlier. I don't know you're from the South. You went to <laughs> Southern hospitality. Like, you know, that's a great illustration of this that anyone from the South or has even visited the South would, would identify with the sort of bless your heart culture, right? Sacred, mm -hmm. sweet, like deeply condescending and sarcastic. Like mm -hmm. the appearance of polish and gentility, 
but, you know, actually saying something very different and maybe not even very respectful. Um, I mean, at a deeper level in the South, like um, there, there was a, the, the culture of, of Southern gentility and chivalry. Um, this is, uh, it was in my book. I hope it made it through. There were so many iterations and cuts, but, you know, the, I had a whole conversation about um, the sort of Arthurian uh, ideals of nobility that, 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 that the Southern states pre-Civil War tried to re- recover and resurrect. They jousted, you know, they, they had, they had coats of arms and titles that they wanted to, but that whole, it was all a facade on a vicious and ugly system based on slavery, right? Like what is the point of that nobility and Polish and, sh- Polish and chivalry if it's propagated and is just a pretty face on a really monstrous uh, an unequal system and way and way of life. Um, so yes, it, it, it cuts both ways. Politeness and how, how I characterize it in the book that civility isn't just doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing for the right reasons. Like it has the inner and outer correlated. Um, whereas it's possible to be polite, to do the right thing, that, that might be the proper thing to do, but for the wrong reasons. For example, being courteous to your boss to try and curry favor because you have your performance review coming up and you're hoping for that promotion. You know, your compliment, I'm telling you, is a great haircut. It looks, you know, fresh that day. Like, but inwardly, it's because it's for self selfish reasons. You don't actually, you're not actually respecting him in that way. You're you're trying to propagate your own interests, which isn't isn't truly really respecting others. I was the other day I was watching The West Wing, and there's this, there's this scene where the president's team has in the president of an African an African nation that is more on the obscure side. And they're talking about drug prices and the drug company is sitting at the table at the West Wing's table uh, with the president and his aide are basically, it's, it's like, it's like mansplaining, but if you were just sort of like condescending uh, a nation in Africa about the way that uh, North American capitalism works um, when it comes to drug pricing and kind of explaining everything about drug prices to this person and why drug prices in their country are so high as if they won't understand uh, and using words that they're not going to keep up with. And the the president kind of like stares at him and goes like, you know, I can tell when you are, you know, talking down to me or talking down to me like I don't understand or like I never went to college. Uh, I went to Yale, sir. Um, <laughs> and it's it's kind of like that also, like when they would bring in somebody to the White House and they would immediately speak in their their tongue, that person's native tongue, as if maybe they don't know English. And then they go, I speak English, sir. Um, right. Yeah. It's just like you're, you're trying, you think you're being polite. You're trying to dress yourself up with speaking nicely, but you are being condescending and your guest can tell when you think lowly of them. Tiny little footnote that uh, I love related to the word condescension. So condescension comes from this like older time where there was social hierarchy, like a rigid mm-hmm. social hierarchy. You were born to a certain class. You died there. There was not a lot of social mobility. And condescension was actually a good thing. It was a way in which someone from an upper class could treat someone from a lower class as their equal in a way that was actually seen as respectful. Mm-hmm. But, but now in this egalitarian society where all men are created equal, men and women are created equal, and we, we value equality, that condescension has more of a negative connotation. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. the perception, the self-perception that, that we are better and talking down to someone like in that President Bartlett example. So I love etymology and I love, you know, history. You know that about me, Stevens. I thought I'd just share that. Uh, words change. Mm-hmm. Words change. They evolve over time. And that's part of the reason I took the liberty to imbue this different meaning onto the, the words civility and politeness, to clearly disambiguate them, to distinguish them. Uh, words evolve, our language evolves to meet our needs. And this is a, this is an evolution in our language that we need right now. Yeah, you are seizing this word and trying to reorient it in a really broken culture where a lot of words are changing meanings right yes. now. Right. It sort of seems like we're at the beginning of this new era of history where everything is being remade and you yes. are sta- you are staking out the new flag for where civility is going to be defined in the right. discourse. That's right. Uh, I really admire that. Now, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned condescension in classes. So, I think this might be a good opportunity for us to watch a video clip. Uh, when I was reading when I was reading your book, I could not help but think about 
Titanic. Uh, and the scene where Jack is invited up to dinner in first class with Rose and her, uh, her family and friends or whatever. Um, and she knows that, you know, he's going into the lion's den here to be eaten alive uh, for the act of saving her on, on the deck up above. But it's a very layered scene and I want to just get your reaction to it. So I'm going to pull up the clip and let's watch a little bit. Ah, so handsome. I know, handsome young Leo, exactly. <laughs> you can tell he's scared. He's never worn a suit before. So what are we looking at right here? Is this just manners? You know, it's great. You see him observing how other people are walking and doing things and, and, and adjusting in real time to, to, to fit in. Mm -hmm. um, that's often how it's done. You know, pretend until... <laughs> look at him pretending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's practicing. Even even standing with your arms crossed and against a wall like that immediately felt out of place. Nobody would do that in that kind of scenery unless you own the place <laughs> right. right all right so i'm gonna jump ahead here to dinner here we go tell us of the accommodations in steerage mr dawson mm. i hear they're quite good on this ship the best i've seen ma'am Hardly any rats. <laughs> Mr. Dawson is joining us from the third class. He was of some assistance to my fiance last night. It turns out that Mr. Dawson is quite a fine artist. He was kind enough to show me some of his work today. Rose and I differ somewhat in our definition of fine art. Not to impugn your work, sir. <clears throat> Classic. Yep. Just start from the outside and work your way in. He knows every rivet in that, don't you, Thomas? Yes. Your ship is a wonder, Mr. Andrews, truly. Thank you, Rose. How do you take a caviar, sir? No caviar for me, thanks. Never did like it much. <laughs> and where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place, you know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky handed poker. A very lucky hand. Hmm. All life is a game of luck. Hmm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. Right, Dawson? Hmm. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, Got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> Who I'm going to meet. Where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night I was sleeping under a bridge and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world having champagne with you fine people. <laughs> I'll take some of that. I figure life's a gift and I don't intend on wasting it. You never know what hand you're going to get dealt next. You learn to take life as it comes at you. Oh, you go, Cal. <laughs> to make each day count. Well said, Jack. Yeah, yeah. To make me count. To, to make it count. Making it count. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the condescension continues in a couple of ways uh, throughout right. that scene. Um, but tell me, tell me a little bit about what you saw at play there from the beginning scene to stuff that stood out in the dinner. Well, I mean, it was clear that Rose's mother 
was not happy he was there, like felt resentful at being put in proximity to someone who she clearly felt better than, who wasn't, you know, wealthy, wasn't born and bred to be her equal. And she did her utmost to make him feel uncomfortable and to make him know that they were different. And that is, that is utterly classless. So that's such, such a tasteless, such a tasteless thing to do. Um, you know, trying to embarrass him, embarrassed the idea that he was uh, exploit, that he was out of his comfort zone and didn't belong where he was um, to illustrate. Uh, so that's, that's not true civility. You know, she was someone that wanted to use weaponize the rules to make him feel uncomfortable and to, to show distance and, and division and to separate uh, to illustrate a story of true civility that, that's related and, and kind of the, the contrary to what um, to what we just saw. Uh, Queen Victoria was hosting the Queen of Persia um, and for a dinner party. And when the dinner was set before them, the Queen of Sheba did the unthinkable. She took the bowl of water intended for her fingers to be washed and tipped it to her lips and sipped it like a soup. She didn't know any different. What did Queen Victoria do in that situation? She did the same thing. She took the tip, the, 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 the finger bowl cup and tipped it to her lips. And this, this is, you know, it's a story. We don't know if it's true. And it's told sometimes differently with Eleanor Roosevelt and different female protagonists. But I love it because it embodies the spirit of true civility that sometimes requires breaking the rules of politeness and the rules of etiquette in order for a friendship, a burgundy friendship or relationship to flourish or in order to make someone who doesn't fit in, fit in and feel more comfortable. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Breaking the rules in pursuit of friendship and togetherness. So your your guest does something that they just have no idea what the mores are and you just laugh and then do it as well. Right. Or Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown in that scene played by Kathy Bates who's sitting next to Leo. She she does the the basic civil thing which is whisper just start on the outside and work your way in and that's yeah. you know that's it. In fact, I think I have that exact example not mention the Titanic um at in my book it's in the introduction where i have like a chart that says you know to, to really hammer home the difference between civility and politeness i give a scenario and then say this is the polite response this is the civil response uh and and, and in one of the scenarios i think i think it's in there <laughs> uh a person is at a dinner party and someone you know makes a faux pas exactly what you know like mm-hmm. dipping sipping a, a fingerful. What's the, the, the polite thing would be to just watch in derision and feel really smug and superior because you know the rules and they don't, right? The civil thing to do would be to either overlook it entirely, pretend it's not happening, definitely don't let it be a tool to make you feel better than others because they're just they're just rules, right? Like ignorance of the rules doesn't, it's not a moral flaw. It's not a moral failing. Or potentially even let them know what they're doing wrong really discreetly, really, really discreetly, if, if at all necessarily. So yeah. One of the things that I, I like about the Jack scene uh, there is that he starts to get more comfortable as he does a little storytelling. So he, you know, he, he he chomps on the bread. He starts talking about his art. So as soon as he starts sharing who he is a little bit, it's almost like he's appealing to what he assumes is the value system of these men at the table. He assumes that these are all capitalists, you know, and that they respect risk and winning, you know, in a hand of poker to get onto the Titanic. And obviously none of them respect being homeless, but they all respect the pursuit. And and it, you can tell that a couple of men at the table, they are like into that. And particularly the guy who says like, here, here, and joins him on, you know, make it count. But then you've got Cal who has to cut across the table. A real man makes his own luck. AKA, I don't know, cheats, lies, steals, or receives his wealth. Um, I mean, what's really interesting is there's a whole literature in history um, of the um, of the, the lower class person transversing class and becoming a higher class person. Like, you know, everything from the Horatio Alger novels in um, like the kind of the bootstraps narrative and the American psyche, but also in like Aladdin from 1001 Nights, the, the Arabian, um, you know, series of myths. Like we, the, those stories like that appeal to us, like the, the, the gritty but resilient and determined underdog um, that's born with nothing, 
and, and through wit and resilience and, um, determination rises above his social rank and, and, you know, wins the day. Uh, we, we love stories like that. Those are timeless and universal for a reason that they speak to something in the human experience that really, really resonates with us. Um, and I think what's so appealing and memorable about the scene you just showed us is that it, 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 it captures that, um, like that we, that we want him to succeed. You know, we want him to, uh, we're, we're rooting for him and we're rooting against Rose's snobby mom who's trying to embarrass him. And we like that he's, he's beating her by, by being above her. Does Jack have any duty at that table being invited as a guest for nothing other than saving someone's life? to moderate or change his behaviors at the table? Uh, or was that the best that you thought he could do? It's a great question. And I, it gets to this question of like, how, what, what is the obligation of the foreigner in a, a novel place? And, you know, for example, did the Queen of Sheba, did she have a duty to look up every single rule of Victorian England and know it, you know, before getting there, maybe like that there's a whole literature of international diplomatic etiquette for that exact reason, because sometimes small faux pas can have really big consequences. I don't know. Uh, like one example of this is George W. Bush when he was in the Middle East. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> yeah. Showed the bottom of his foot to like, he crossed his leg and that was a huge insult. That was like a huge affair. But there are, there are lots of other things like finger gestures, hand gestures, those, those matter a lot. Shaking hand, not shaking hand, uh, you know, different small things can easily be misconstrued as, as an insult. And even not doing certain things can be insulting. The gracious thing is to assume ignorance and not assume that, you know, a foreign person in a foreign land, because Jack is a foreign person in a foreign land, right? Like he is coming from the undercurrent. the accommodations and steerage. Exactly. He's never been in the environment before. So, um, I mean, there, there is, in an ideal world, if there's an opportunity to learn about the norms of a new environment you're going into, I think you should do it. Um, but there's also a reciprocal um, ideal on, on behalf of, of you know, the host and the host country or the host community to have grace and to assume charity, like assume the best and not assume the worst. And again, certainly not um, trying to weaponize knowledge of the rules. Um, for our own superiority. Civility requires assuming the best of people. Mm -hmm. In your introduction on page 17, you lead into it by saying civility requires respect of others, but it also requires respect of self. And here you go into setting boundaries. Yes. Setting boundaries and saying no to others may seem impolite and might be difficult for those of us who have been acclimated in ways of politeness, often our culture values politeness, inclines us to say silent and say yes to things and people we may not want to because we don't want to offend them. But having firm personal boundaries and ensuring our personal space is encroached on by becoming fluent in other things and, and grace, um, that this is part of respect as well. Yes. So I wanted to ask you about a scenario which is not outlined, at least in the, the opening of your book which is what happens when I apply to a corporate job in a couple of years and I am required in the interview process for those opportunities to give pronouns. Mm -hmm. I object and mm -hmm. I do not want to give pronouns. Mm -hmm. It cuts against my sense of both self and truth uh, and the way that I think that people should relate to one another. Mm. I don't believe in this practice, but it is a rapidly normalizing practice. Mm -hmm. It is in the university. It's in the corporate workplace. I just had to take a mandatory HR training video for my workplace a couple of days ago where I was informed that, you know, getting pronouns wrong or whatever can also like lead to uh, discrimination lawsuits. Mm -hmm. So this is becoming baked into our culture. What should people do with the pronoun issue? How is it? How do you deal with civility in that context? Yeah, I think this goes to the. Uh, it gets at a, a number of different angles of, of related themes that we're talking about here. First of all, is like the personal boundary one. You know, like you're to, to force you to give your pronouns. That feels like a transgression of your personal boundaries, and you saying no and holding that personal boundary might cost you something, but you are staying true to yourself in, in having that personal boundary. Um, 
you know, in, in, in the world in general right now, there's a lot of pressure uh, to conform to another person's pronouns. Like, you know, a person when they were a girl, they've now changed their pronouns to something different. Um, there's a lot of pressure to say yes, you know, affirm their pronouns, whatever they say goes. For some people, affirming different pronouns is a violation of conscience and they have a real moral qualm to do so. I personally don't have a moral qualm doing so. If someone asked me to, you know, address them differently, um, I, that that would not be, that's not an issue for me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But I think that we need to recognize that people have different boundaries and different comfort levels. And, it, and again, saying no isn't a declaration of war on the other. Because I think that often if... Um, there, there are other, there are other circumstances in my life. I'm getting personal for a second. Like I have a really hard time being told no to. It goes back to things in my childhood where being told no was punitive. It was often um, punitive, and it was, um, it wasn't seen as something that was loving and in my interest. And 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 because of that, I very often associate no's with like um, uh, really painful, you know, emotional experiences, like, um, feelings of lack of self-worth. And so it's been a long journey that I'm probably not even fully over or finished that where I have to disassociate, like, no, is just no. It's not someone telling me that they don't, they hate me and they think I'm a horrible person, that they don't want to come to my house for dinner. They don't want to, you know, review my book. They don't want to, whatever it is. Like, uh, they don't want to publish my essay that, um, that no is just no, and I don't have to read into it and bring all of my history and emotion to it. But I think, you know, especially with many politically and, and charged issues today, um, no can just be no. Like, you know, we're in this phase now where silence is violence. You can't just say no, or you can't just have no opinion on something. Marcus Aurelius has a great quote on, on, on this thing. He says, you know, remember that you always have the right to not have an opinion on something. And I always love, I always love that, that insight because like in this media culture we live in now, we have to, we feel obligated. I feel that pressure sometimes to speak out on things that I don't really want to speak out on. That's why I don't envy, you know, people who are, do, do, you know, commentary for a living or are columnists for a living, like to have something new and original to say on every news hook, but that's tiresome. And nobody is new and original <laughs> that, you know, five days a week, three days a week, even. Um, so all that to say, you know, what does it look like to, in our culture, recover a sense of appreciating people's boundaries, even if they're setting boundaries that you don't like, that maybe you might might offend you. Like, What does it mean to balance their respect for themselves and saying no or, or drawing drawing a certain line or a boundary, having distance in a, in a relationship? Even like, There are lots of ways in which this applies. Um, and... Um, but but instead, you know, everyone everyone has to have the right answer and the right opinion on all things at all times. Otherwise, you know, all hell breaks loose. You're canceled. You're destroyed. You're, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of Oliver Anthony and his new viral song, "Rich Men North of Richmond." Everybody on Twitter and online are talking about this song. It's topping all of the charts on every streaming platform and it's politically charged. And so the right and the left are now feuding over this song. And there's, it seems like people just like get mad at you if you go, I don't like country. <laughs> it's like, I don't care. I don't care about this song. And I'm not going to participate in a debate with you about this song. I don't like country. So I don't have to have, I don't have to have an opinion on this. Yeah. I don't, I don't enjoy this type of music, but yeah. I want to, I want to go back to the pronouns bit just a little bit because the the value systems clash there I, I think is more interesting than most people give it credit for because it sort of comes out of the academy and in the span of four or five years it moves with graduates straight into the corporate the corporate world and becomes one of the sort of the new standards of the private sector uh, and is still being enforced on college campuses today and for people who come in to the university with no exposure to any of those things uh, from working class America or just, you know, families that don't have anybody in it who have gone to college mm -hmm. before, I'll be like, what? Like, I, sorry, I don't live on Twitter. My, my parents didn't go to college. I've never had a job in the private sector. You're asking me for what? And it seems strange to me that we're rebuilding society around 
the social mores of the most educated, most affluent and elite people, and then leaving everybody else bamboozled, sort of in a sense about the the pronouns thing. So who gets to reshape society? That's kind of the debate that your your book is really, I think, taking on is if our society is constantly changing, who gets to be in charge? And then who gets to set the rules that everybody follows when it comes to discourse? That's exactly um, correct. So in my in my book, I think, you know, pronouns are arguably a part of the subset of, um, you know, luxury belief and, and habitus, like norms of, um, of, of privileged people. There's a great book and thinker, a sociologist at Harvard University that I uh, he's a friend of mine, and I cite him in my book. His name's Anthony Abraham. Anthony Abraham Jack, and his book is called "The Privileged Poor." Um, and, and lessons about what they can teach us. So his story is that he uh, was from a very poor family, African American family in Florida. He went to he lucked out, won the lottery, went from was able to go from public school to a very elite private school in Florida. So he had a sort of cheat sheet to the norms and expectations and language of the privileged, of elite. So when he ultimately got a scholarship to go to Harvard University, he had a little bit of an edge. He was the quote unquote privileged poor because he was deeply from a very impoverished background and disadvantaged in many ways. And yet, because he went to school with very, very, um, very affluent people, he had a little bit of an understanding about their world, you know, even just how they, where, where they holiday, the kind of, the kind of consumption patterns, um, how they interact with figures of authority. And all of those, those are kind of the, uh, the unwritten curriculum. A sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu, a French sociologist who I adore, uh, has this idea of the hidden curriculum that you go to school, there's not just the, the, what you're learning, um, you know, history 101. It's like, no, there's a, there's an, a whole curriculum that is, uh, that you're implicitly being graded on and if you don't know the rules and expectations, even you're going to fail. And that is a huge part of succeeding and flourishing in any setting, especially at an institution of higher education. And so uh, he really he really chastises elite universities in America for um, for for having these sort of exclusive cultures, these, these hidden curriculums that that make it really difficult for, for uh, people who are underprivileged who end up in these environments to navigate uh, because of all these unwritten expectations. So he was a privileged poor. He, he called himself a member of the privileged poor, where he had, you know, that early exposure to, to affluence. But what about someone who was just a fish out of water, like came right from a disadvantaged background, right from public school into that, like they're even doubly disadvantaged, he says. Uh, and at such, it's, it's really difficult to overcome that and, and, and to allow a, a student to fulfill their potential in, in, in higher education, which is what the purpose of going to school is. And, and so he's, he has really great ideas for how to make, um, make things that don't matter really matter less, you know, like in, in, uh, in, um, in college life, like we shouldn't place so much value in society on, on things like, you know, the clothes we wear and where we holiday and the kind of words that we use, like, how do we just disambiguate those, what I call class markers, disambiguate those from, again, just true civility. Pure, pure civility, the stuff of being a good friend, like actual virtue, you know, being gentle and kind and uh, and selfless, uh, helping people who can't help you in return, respecting people across differently. Those are virtues that um, are are actual virtues and, and and can and can correlate with with an inner goodness, as opposed to the trappings. Uh, like we like these shortcuts to virtue. We like these shortcuts to, um, to goodness. We like to feel like if we're wearing the right thing, doing the right thing, saying the right thing, we're good. We're okay. And that's not the case. That's the, that's where, that's the domain of politeness, but civility is deeper, richer. It's costlier. It's, it takes work. It takes, um, habit to build character, uh, and, and doing the right thing, even when it's in its, um, when it's not easy to do. So anyway, I, I think that's really interesting, um, line of, questioning and and um you might like uh, anthony abraham jack and and pierre borgia two kind of two sociologists with lots to say on these topics no i'll i'll be sure to look that up i've already written the name down and you know the issue is is very very loaded and layered because you're talking about for people who ascribe to that and use alternative 
pronouns from their biological sex and gender, they'll say that this frames their humanity um, mm -hmm. and that the simple act of using the correct pronouns is a act of humanizing them. Uh, and what's the cost to you? It's I'm all I'm asking you to do is is say they them or she her or sometimes it's they and him <laughs> and all this kind of stuff and, and keep up with that. And I get it. I it's it on its on the surface. It is really simple uh, to simply do it. And when you're thinking about the politeness versus manners that or the politeness versus civility thing, yeah, it's like you could conform and do the thing. Uh, saying it through, you know, through your teeth. Um, mm -hmm. But doesn't it mean more when you're speaking to somebody from a place of sincerity right. and and real understanding? And gosh, I would just, I would prefer to be dealing with somebody who I knew their value system, I knew what they believed in, and we were able to share space and work together without violating each other's yeah. sense of self. Yeah, that's what I would want from someone because I I do. I know everybody always says stuff like this. I have a black friend. I have a trans friend. But like I do, I do have some yeah. trans, trans and, and gender non-binary friends who use alternate pronouns. Um, and I used to know them uh, in a previous way. And then they transitioned into being a different person and living a different life. And I've adjusted my language accordingly because they're, they're my friends. I, I love them. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, it's like when you talk about like just doing it for a stranger, or just some colleague that you've never met. It's like I, it's different. It's different. Mm -hmm. um, I can violate my sense of truth and what is real for for people who I am engaged with on a deeper level, mm -hmm. and I've invested in, and they're invested in me. But if it's just for nothing to do a panel on a Comic-Con or to get a job, it might just be best not to take the job if that's going to mm -hmm. be something you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that's, you know, the, the exercise for you is to examine your conscience and stay in, in, in tune with your conscience. If your conscience doesn't seem to be prohibiting you in certain circumstances from conforming to a, an expectation uh, or a so social norm to support a friend, but it does in other circumstances. And I think what's disappointing is that the world is so intolerant of that. Like we're very one size fits all. We're very unnuanced and like right is right. Black is black is white. You know, like it's just, it's, it's a very static um, heavy handed way of viewing the world. Whereas as human beings, we're infinitely complex, infinitely nuanced. Like I wonder, um, yeah. So, you know, for someone who might be angry at you for holding the beliefs that you do, would it be costly to ask them to be curious about you and why you're, why, why you might have a hang up in one situation, but not a hang up in the other? Like that might be a really productive, interesting conversation. But I think that there is such a lack of curiosity. I have a whole mm -hmm. chapter in my book on curiosity uh, about other people, about why we come to the views that we have, about who we are and, and the stories behind our beliefs and our actions in the world. Like we just see, 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 you know, one aspect of who they are, one thing they say, one thing they do and define their whole, the whole sense of self, like the other by virtue of that, as opposed to seeing one another and our infinite richness and complexity and beauty as human beings. Uh, and that's, that's a real loss. I agree. Alexander, you've been very generous with your time. I want to wrap us up here since we're coming up, coming up on 50 minutes, but I want you to conclude by sharing kind of any final thoughts that you want to offer people about the need for your book, uh, where to get it and when to get it. And maybe begin by telling us a story. This is the way and the Walk the Way podcast are all about stories, the stuff that we love watching, reading, uh, that lift us up. And your book tells a bunch of stories from those of Martin Luther King to Patatatat to Gilgamesh to Epictetus, all these different tales, some of them even mythic about how civility can make our lives and the world a better place. So if you need to take a moment to think about it, which story you might like to tell us about that is told in your book, I'd love to hear a story. I, I love the story of uh, Marcus Aurelius and, and Epictetus. So they're people from very different um, social classes in life. Epictetus was a slave and he was a cripple. So disability, like dubly, multiply disadvantaged in life. Marcus Aurelius, by contrast, was king of Rome, emperor of Rome, and incredibly well-educated, privileged, the adopted son of prior emperor Hadrian's who had been raised in this life of privilege. And um, 
And despite their, their, their differences in life and circumstance, um, they, they both suffered a lot. Like Apertius was, was sick a lot and, and Marcus Aurelius, um, suffered from, from, um, illnesses and like, especially like psychological illness. He really struggled a lot, uh, with, you know, what we might call depression and other, and other things. And, and they both, despite their differences, um, grappled with their struggles with, um, with, with, with stoicism. So when, um, when, when Marcus Aurelius was emperor of Rome, he endowed four chairs of philosophy for the Platonists. He endowed the Academy for the Aristotelians. He endowed the Lyceum for the Epicureans. He endowed the garden and for the Stoics, he endowed the Stoa or the front porch. And, um, so Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus were both Stoics and, and kind of in the Stoic vein, and uh, they adopted what I call like the sort of porching disposition of civility, like the porching revolution is a whole concept in my book that, um, you know, we look out and it's really easy to be frustrated with the world around us and, you know, see our public leaders going at it and people fighting on Twitter and even, um, you know, disarray in our communities. Um, the potholes at front of, in front of my house, for example, are enough to like, you know, make me run for office in a fit of rage. But like, you know, we can't change those things around us and we can't change what others do, but we can change ourselves and we can make our communities better, our families better. And we can, you know, have the boundaries in place and the habits in place that, that allow us to be our best selves. Um, and that, if, and, and that in, in investing in ourselves in that way, we can have uh, and bring more beauty and joy and light to the, 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 the sphere of influence that we have. And we can reclaim that sphere of influence and say, I'm going to change the world from right here that we can't change others, but we can change ourselves. And if enough of us choose to, to do that, to have that, that the disposition of that porching revolution, choose to reclaim the soul of civility, we might be able to, to change the world. So there's a story for you and a, and a call to action. Please go buy my book. And I have uh, $700 uh, worth of free stuff. So please order my book and then uh, go to alexandraohudson.com forward slash book pre-order and um and please uh claim the all the all the an ebook a uh course a toolkit all these fun things for you to enjoy right here before the book comes out so um and i can't wait to hear what you think stay in touch with me at civic-renaissance.com my publication and newsletter dedicated to beauty goodness and truth and the wisdom of the past uh, to help us lead better lives and um and stay in touch and and keep having these important conversations keep asking these questions you heard it here, alexandraohudson.com. The book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on Walk the Way.